Good morning. This is John Halsman, and welcome to the Patrick Henry Podcast, where we hold the feet of the Western world's elite to the fire. And today I was going to do, I was all set to do, taking the notes and everything, our culture section, which I'm looking forward to. We're up to the third album of five um, of albums you must listen to. We've done the great Joni Mitchell and the equally great Marvin Gaye, and we're moving on to The Birds, uh, a group that invented folk rock. Uh, There's some quibbles about Dylan, the Beatles, the Beau Brummels, but really in the end, it was The Birds who created a whole new way of rock and roll ahead, and it's a fantastic story. We're going to look at their revolutionary breakthrough album, Mr. Tambourine Man, one of my favorites, um, and talk about them. But I'm going to have to push that off because, as you know, uh, here in the community, when we do political risk, we have to follow the ball. And when things come up, we have to talk about them. And that's the life that we share together and the life that I live that, you know, no day. The fascinating thing about my job is no day is ever the way you think it's going to go. And things come up. Uh, that you didn't think of at all, and other things that you think are important drop by the wayside, and you're constantly creatively managing this. And today we're going to manage a story that's been looming, and I've been hesitant to pull the trigger on, but I think now we have to. And the reason is that Anne Applebaum, wrong about literally everything and without a shred of self-reflection, has just written an essay in the Neocons home paper, The Atlantic, also the home of David Frum, former speechwriter to George W. Bush, the worst modern president one can think of, who got us into Iraq, uh, bungled Afghanistan and led to the financial crisis. I mean, he's right down there with James Buchanan, a nice man, uh, but terrible in that he held, was held under the sway of his neoconservative advisors and their cheerleaders, Ann Applebaum, David Frum, Max Boot, Robert Kagan, Bill Kristol, the whole motley neoconservative crew, Paul Wolfowitz, the Wolfman, um, and these people led the country into a ditch. And yet she has the nerve to write an article today saying history will judge the complicit. That's what I like about the neocons. They have not a shred of self-reflection, and yet they're morally censorious. And the, and the upshot of this album is that Ann Applebaum wants to take names, saying history will judge us, and anyone supporting Donald Trump is on the wrong side of history and will be judged harshly for supporting an unstable and indeed dangerous man uh, to be president. And let's unpack that in a minute uh, about the politics lurking behind this. And that's always in the DC way what you have to do. What's really going on? Where is the Loch Ness Monster? You don't look at the surface of the loch, you look at what's going on under the water. And I think we absolutely have to do that today. Anne Applebaum's latest incredibly annoying broadside, History Will Judge the Complicit, uh, certainly doesn't mention much about Iraq, uh, which she will be judged by, a war that she and her cheerleading friends started that led to the deaths of a quarter million Iraqis, thousands of Americans, shattered lives all over the United States, cost a trillion hard-earned dollars, and left Iran the dominant power in the Gulf and indirectly led to the rise of ISIS, which is something out of the Middle Ages. Um, I remember being at Heritage and seeing a slave marker for ISIS that they were actually enslaving people. And I found a UN ticket of this was shown this, of, the, of, the, of their enslaving of people. And so this is extraordinary. Um, and this went on indirectly because of the things Anne Applebaum simplistically and moralistically uh, put forward. And now at last, the bill is coming due. 
And I would like to start the title of this as the neocons last stand. And let's look at the most famous last stand ever, George Armstrong Custer's last stand. Uh, my father loved the United States and taught me an awful lot of history. I've actually traveled in a car in 48 of the 50 states, the Continental 48. I've actually crossed by car, so I know what America looks like. He was determined to make something of me, and that meant learning as much history as possible. And one of the things that fascinated both my dad and myself were the Indian Wars of the latter part of the 19th century. And he knew a great deal about the history and culture of the Cheyenne, the Lakota, as well as the white folks who were fighting them out on the plains. And three times in my life, I've had the great pleasure to go with the National Park Service, one of our great soft power treasures, out to Little Bighorn, the Battle of Little Bighorn, where George Armstrong Custer and 230-some of his men were massacred or killed outright in a battle, depending on how you look at it, by the Lakota and the Cheyenne, led by the genius of the cavalry genius of Sitting Bull and the overall command of the Hunk Papa Lakota, um, Sitting Bull and the genius of Crazy Horse, his great lieutenant and cavalry officer, also Chief Gall, was there, rain in the face, a number of other fantastic Indian fighters were there. But really the reason for the battle, and, and Sitting Bull got this right, when later asked about it, he said Custer was a fool. Custer uh, didn't let facts get in the way of his theory. He had been a dashing, brave to the point of recklessness officer in the American Civil War, the youngest brevetted major general, meaning he was only temporarily a major general, but did hold that rank in the huge army of the Potomac. He fought with reckless bravery throughout the Civil War, most notably at Gettysburg, where a charge he led late on the third day stopped Jeb Stuart coming around the Union line, which was the other part of Pickett's charge, and Custer, through almost a suicidally brave charge, held off Stuart. No, no one's doubting uh, his backbone, much as is true with the neocons, I'm doubting their intellectual abilities and the catastrophes they cause and walk away from. And Custer, went, you know, after being brevetted down to Lieutenant Colonel, uh, didn't really know what to do with himself after the war, went out west, became a premier Indian fighter, uh, and the Indians had all kinds of names for him. Uh, Son of the Morning Star was one of the Lakota names because he would attack in the morning while the stars were still out, often villages full of women and children, what we call today a war crime, but then was called surprise attack, uh, and, and he, he attacked Black Kettle's village along the Washita, for instance, won a victory there. Uh, became known as, and partly PR, again, it's always with the Custer, it's a mix of hype and reality, um, but became a, a feared Indian fighter um, out on the plains. And gold was discovered on the land that had been given to the Indians in the Black Hills. And so there goes another treaty. The United States has never actually lived up shamefully to any treaty ever made with a Native American group. And so when gold's discovered in the Black Hills, because Custer actually had gone out and scouted this out and found gold, and so there's a land rush on, and, and the settlers don't care that it's Indian land. And so as a result of this, Sitting Bull decides to take, uh, leave the reservations and take to the field one final time and rallies the Indians. I mean, knowing heroically that they're going to lose uh, technologically, but says we can go hunt buffalo for one more season. And so the largest gathering of Plains Indians, or Indians in America, full stop, happens in June 1876, and the Indians gather together to hunt buffalo and live the old way one last time. 
And this gets all the diehards and iridentists out there led by Sitting Bull, the charismatic Hunk Papa chief. But again, crazy horses with him, the brilliant cavalry officer, Chief Gall, um, and others are with him. Custer is almost not sent out on, 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 the, uh, on the actual fighting. He wants to fight. He's getting older now. He's in his 30s. And he's looking to have a post-fighting career where he gives a series of speeches for money, writes a book about his exploits, but he needs one more glorious victory, one more feather in his cap to make this work. And so Custer uh, is set to lead the uh, expedition out to fight Sitting Bull and the others to find them. They don't even know where they are, the immense landmass of our West and the beauty of it. And it's easy to get lost there. I can say that from experience. And Custer is going to lead this, but then, of course, he can't keep his mouth shut. He badmouths President Grant and his family for corruption. Whether true or not, this isn't a smart idea to attack the commander in chief of the country and noted Civil War hero, the greatest Union Civil War hero. And so Grant says, well, no, you can't go. And Custer realizes that he, he's, you know, stepped in it and that he's not going to get to go and his future is imperiled. Um, and he gets his friends, General Sheridan, Phil Sheridan, who was commanding officer of the U.S. Army at the time. And he gets Sheridan uh, to beg for him to Grant and say, you know, send him out. And Sheridan, you know, who, who um, was really Custer's mentor, Sheridan, you know, was Iceman to Custer's Mav, to put it in Top Gun terms. And Sheridan decides, you know, begs and pleads. And Grant says, OK, he can go. But he's not commanding it. General Terry will do the commanding, and the result of this means that with Terry doing the commanding, Custer will go along and lead a prong of the attack. Now, Custer isn't going to be happy doing this, and Terry, you know, there's a sighting of the Indians, and they attack in mass General Crook at the Battle of the Rosebud just before Little Bighorn, and it's the largest gathering of Indians that anybody's ever seen, and Crook's men barely survive annihilation. Um, and in fact, their, their Indian scouts save them. But Crook, is it, it's a pitched battle. The Indians usually fight in a guerrilla fashion. They shoot at you, fade away into the hills. You go along, they ambush you, fade away into the hills. There aren't pitched battles. There aren't the number of people to do that. There are no pitched battles. And so they can't fight in, in the way that, you know, Westerners are used to fighting in a pitched battle like Chancellorsville or Fredericksburg or Gettysburg. And so this frustrates uh, this frustrates the folks there. This frustrates them. Pardon me, which is causing trouble. This this frustrates the folks there. Um, upshot of this is that Crook is forced back into pitch battle, and nobody's ever seen the Indians stand and fight. And they they they're not disappearing into the hills. They have the numbers on Crook's men who just saved themselves. Uh, but the upshot from this is it's known that Crook has come upon this vast Indian camp. Everybody else thinks this is, you know, serious stuff. Custer sees this as a chance to win glory. That the bigger the group of Indians together, the better, because it makes for a better story, better PR. He has political ambitions beyond wanting to write a book and go on the speaking circuit. He has political ambitions. This is the way to do it. And even better for Custer at the time, the 1876 Centennial Exposition is going on. So it's the 100th anniversary of the United States, and everything is being celebrated. What a glorious time to win this final victory over the Indians and, and subdue the West, pull the curtain down on the Indian Wars, and win everything. So Custer, his, his ears are back. He's ready to go. And 
when he, he chases the Indians, General Terry and others say to him, you know, Custer, don't be greedy. Don't get all the Indians. They set him off. They set the dog off the leash. They say they're going to support him. The, the American armies divided into sections, but Custer heads down uh, toward the Little Bighorn. And sure enough, he finds or thinks he finds the Indians. He actually gets to the crow's nest, this bluff overlooking the grasslands around the Little Bighorn. And his Crow Indian scouts say, you know, we see the, a tribe of Indians. It's the biggest village we've ever seen. It would take many days to kill all the Indians there. And Custer just sees wisps of smoke from the campfires of the Indians, but he can't quite make out that they're there. But he believes the Crow scouts when they say there are more Indians than we can kill in a day. And this excites him, whereas the Crow scouts are saying, let's go slowly. But Custer says, you know, we're going to go ahead. And the Indians then, the Crow scouts, put their shawls over their heads in a burial fashion as they know they're walking into a disaster. Worse, Custer divides his army into three, his little group into three. He takes the main group, 200-some men, um, down the Little Bighorn to try to encircle the village, leaving two guys who hate him, Captain Frederick Benteen and Major Marcus Reno, in front of him and who hate him and aren't likely to follow him. And he says to Reno, you attack, cross the river, attack the camp. I'll come around behind you and between us in a pincer movement, will stop them. Well, Reno crosses the stream, runs in straight into the village, and is, is very quickly running back as fast as he can. He has to get over the bluff. Uh, Re Reno's behavior was called into question. He was court-martialed later and acquitted, though he probably shouldn't have been. Uh, he panics and runs, skedaddles over the little bighorn, and Benteen comes up uh, to, uh, to get to him. And he and Benteen are holding out against this huge number of Indians, Custer, meanwhile, has gone around. Oblivious has gone around to the other end of the village. He sends back a note to Benteen saying, hurry up, bring packs, hurry up, many Indians. And that's the last we ever really hear of Custer. Um, Benteen had hated Custer for getting a friend of his killed uh, at the Washita, the, the earlier uh, Battle of the Washita, which had been a Custer victory, and he'd gotten a friend of his killed. So he doesn't buy into the Custer worship that so many of the 7th Cavalry did. And so he refuses to come up and help Custer. Now, partly it's because he's being attacked on all sides. Rosebud, you know, like the Battle of the Rosebud, he's, he's in trouble with, with, with Reno. But partly they're not going to exert themselves. He thinks Custer's left them behind again to get the glory, leaving behind this, this other group that's going to get wiped out. So his prejudices kick in and he's not going to help Custer. Well, Custer has gone around the other side of the village and he and the 230 men simply vanish into history. Uh, they're surrounded. There, there are various accounts of what happened, the oral traditions of the Indians. If you go to the museum, the Native American History Museum in Washington, you can see buffalo skins where they've done pictographs, beautiful pictographs of the Battle of Little Bighorn, which is absolutely something to see. Absolutely something to see. Um, and so that's going on at the same time. And... It's not entirely clear, again, what happened, but if you see the pictographs, you get a sense of how the battle went. The men went around, and uh, I love looking. I took my son, uh, I took Benjamin there to go see it, and we had a great time. And so this is going on with, with Custer, and he disappears into history. One version is that he dies very early uh, in the battle on the other side of the river, but in the end, a group of about 100 of these folks get together and uh, have a last stand. Probably they've taken the body 
of, uh, of Custer with them. Tom Custer is there. Uh, Custer's brother um, is probably among them, and, and a number of other Custer's relatives are there. A, a brother-in-law is there, another brother's there. And they're all, they're all waiting, and they're surrounded by the Indians led by Crazy Horse, and they are annihilated. So on the anniversary of the centennial of the country, these, these primitive Stone Age people have been an afterthought, annihilate yellow hair, his other name, yellow hair, because of his blonde hair streaming in the wind. And Custer, ignoring all the facts, is annihilated. And that's kind of what's happened to the neocons. It's a very long and I think very good story. I was fascinated by it as a kid. And this is what the neocons have done. They are arrogant. They are hubristic. They ignore warnings, they ignore facts, and yet they still think they're morally superior. And somehow it's going to come right on the day. And sometimes by the grace of God, they survive. But ultimately playing Russian roulette is a fool's errand and you will be annihilated. There will be a last stand. And that's what's going on presently with the neoconservatives. Now let's look at this. Why is this Custer-like for them? This is the key question. And why is this Custer-like? Well, first of all, uh, all this talk, and I mentioned this briefly at the end of our last podcast about the alternate reality uh, of, 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 of the elites. Robert Kagan saying, you know, democracy is coming to an end. And I, as an aside, said, well, look, if you substitute his influence is coming to an end for democracy, everything makes sense. Now, let's go through the looking glass. What do I mean here? That the neoconservatives, despite the debacle in Iraq, the debacle in Afghanistan, the debacle of their worldview, have really not suffered any foreseeable penalties for being catastrophically wrong and costing hundreds of thousands of Iraqi lives, thousands of American lives, tens of thousands of American lives have been ruined by knowing these people and costing a trillion dollars. And yet there's been remarkable little blowback. By the way, this is not the sign of a healthy republic. In a healthy republic, Guess what happens when you fail? You're out. If you compare what happened to Robert McNamara, who was the Secretary of Defense under Kennedy and Johnson in Vietnam, or McGeorge Bundy, the National Security Advisor for both, they're basically ostracized from the American establishment. I met McNamara at the Council on Foreign Relations, and there were people here who wouldn't talk to him and acted like he had some sort of radiation damage and no one would get near him. I was fascinated to talk to him about the Cuban Missile Crisis, which we talk about in Last Best Hope, of course, and other things, but nobody would go up to him. Not only did his career not advance, he was ostracized in a Greek way. McGeorge Bundy, who had been thought a shoe in to be the dean of Harvard, never got that sinecure. So stained was his name by the blood of Vietnam. These guys in a healthy republic were shunned, were ostracized, did not progress despite what they've done. Compare this to Iraq, a Vietnam-sized tragedy and debacle, and there's been nothing, no blowback. Worse, these people still have the nerve to talk in moralistic terms, like Ann Applebaum this morning saying, history will judge the complicit. I agree. It will judge you for the horrible mistakes you've made, for your arrogance, for not having a shred of self-reflection. And let me say, I got to know McNamara. The man was in agony for what he did in Vietnam. He talked to me at length about it. I was fascinated but felt nothing but kind of pity for him in an Old Testament way, in a Greek way. Tragedy had come upon him, and with tragedy, wisdom. That's what normally happens in a healthy republic. 
Not so for the neocon cheerleaders for Iraq. What's happened to them? Precisely nothing. In fact, John Bolton briefly became a senior advisor, national security advisor to Donald Trump. That won't happen again. We've all learned from this. But Bolton not only didn't suffer any, he got a promotion for being a cheerleader for Iraq, which is an incredible thing uh, to happen. Uh, and Applebaum has gone from sinecure to sinecure. She's now a staff writer uh, for The Atlantic. She's written for The Washington Post. Nobody has questioned the fact that she's fundamentally wrong about the seminal issue of her day. Likewise, Robert Kagan, people act like he's some sort of grand old man of the Washington establishment. If that's the case, God help the establishment. Max Boot, same thing, member, senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. All these guys got promoted for what they did, not shunned, not demoted, didn't drink themselves to death, didn't commit suicide, which would be the decent thing to do if you get thousands of people killed. Certainly, you'd have some reflection, feel some agony at a minimum. No, they're going around moralistically saying history will judge us as complicit. They're the ones who are complicit. And yet no one has stepped on their careers until now. The last stand is here at last. They're separated from their forces, and I feel like crazy horse about to surround them. Why? Because their basic view of the world was wrong. They said the world is unipolar. The Romans used to say of the Mediterranean, Mare Nostrum, R.C., uh, they control the world. Yeah, there's some Parthians at one side, a few barbarians in England, but by and large, they run the world. And that's the way the Romans viewed things and, and was indeed true for them. That's not the world we live in. It's certainly not the world we live in now. It wasn't even the world we lived in at the time of Iraq. But now we have a peer competitor superpower in China. We have a rising superpower to be a great power, rising superpower to be in India. We have other great powers around the world with a lot of latitude to do as they want. We have Russia in that category, Japan in that category, the Anglosphere, English-speaking peoples in that category, and even the EU in that category. So it isn't a unipolar world where the neocons just say, we can do whatever we like, doesn't matter, and impose democracy at the point of a gun. That leads me to my second problem with the neocons' view. The imposition of democracy hasn't worked very well. The idea that we're all on the same side, that freedom is freedom everywhere, that no one has a specific history, culture, sociology, ethnology, or anything particular that divides them, that there's one way forward and that you just add water and get George Washington and all these other complexities will go away. They in vain looked for a George Washington in Iraq not to find one. Instead, they found people who didn't think they were Iraqis, but thought of themselves as Sunni Shia and Kurds thought of themselves in ethno-religious terms and not as a Iraqi state. The only people who believed in being an Iraqi were failed exiles living in Washington who the neocons listened to when they bought into this argument to serve their own ends about we're all for the cause of freedom as though it were that simple, black and white, and it's that simple. Even the pet project of Ann Applebaum at cheerleading for Ukraine, the idea that a country that has suspended elections next year because they're fighting a war is democratic. Everyone knows before the war that, that Ukraine was an oligarchy, a series of oligarchies 
terrible record with corruption, not, not a very good record with democracy. They're suspending fighting because of the war. We, we had a, an election in 1864 in the middle of the Civil War, which Lincoln wasn't even winning until Sherman took Georgia late in the campaign. McClellan was beating Lincoln until September 1864 when Sherman took Atlanta and turned the political tables and saved Lincoln. But they were going to go ahead with the election, even though it didn't suit Lincoln. So the idea that everyone is a democracy just like us at Jeffersonian struggling to get out has been proven wrong in Afghanistan, where everybody took the gold bars and ran, where the government lasted, you know, we spent a trillion dollars and it lasted a week before the Taliban took it over, where these people have no legitimacy in their own societies, nor in Iraq, with the people we put in, no legitimacy, and they're acting like you can add water and get George Washington and the world's unipolar, so there's no downside to doing it, and that you can impose democracy. I would argue that this is an organic point. You can work with local forces to further democracy, sure, but impose it, and certainly not at the point of a gun, which is what they've tried to do. But if you believe the United States is the only power, the only game in town, why not? Why wouldn't you do this? Why wouldn't you do this? And yet, the record would prove them wrong over and over and over again. The other thing the neocons don't do, we could go on and on, but one other thing they don't do is they don't act like there are any domestic needs in America, that we have limitless money. They act like it's treasonous if we mention the debt is $34 trillion, that we have a fentanyl crisis that killed over 100,000 people last year, more people than died in the whole of Vietnam. And in fact, it's almost the whole of Vietnam and Korea put together. That's a staggering number. Nobody's talking about it. We have dilapidated infrastructure, an educational system that's falling apart, but they care more about the border with Ukraine than the southern border of the United States, which, to put it kindly, is porous. They don't really care about Americans, the neocons, domestically. They care more about the rest of the world and American power imposing order on the rest of the world than they do about Americans. And that is an unforgivable sin to me as an American patriot. I don't think they are. I think they think of the American army as a series of risk pieces. And if they roll badly, they flick the little risk piece back into the box. I don't think they have any idea that our soldiers, who should be venerated, have hopes and dreams and families and things that matter. That doesn't mean we don't use them, but it means we use them only when our primary interests are at stake. For these people, America is a hammer and every problem is a nail. The first use of the military is their idea. If Ann Applebaum had her way, the United States would have troops in Ukraine. This beggar's description. This is George Armstrong Custer riding with his yellow hair to his own doom and oblivion. Uh, because as Crazy Horse put it, he's a fool. They have been wrong on the substance over and over and over and over again. Not just the big things. But the little things, Somalia, disaster, Balkans, disaster, Haiti, disaster, Iraq, disaster, Afghanistan, disaster. And yet Ann Applebaum this morning says history will judge the complicit. I agree with her. It will. It will judge you. And at last, the bill is coming due because the reason for Robert Kagan worrying about the end of the American Republic, all of a sudden he's discovered it. And the reason that Ann Applebaum is shrieking about Donald Trump is that their influence is about to come to nothing. The bill is about to come due. The last stand is upon us. 
their candidate, Nikki Haley, just lost registered voters in the Republican Party in New Hampshire by 49 points. That's right. Among registered Republicans in New Hampshire, she lost by 50. She lost by 30 in Iowa, and she's going to lose by 30 in South Carolina. This is the end of the Bush-era establishment neocon um, the pathetic remnant, the last stand, they've run to the last hill, the slight rise in the hill above the little bighorn waiting to be slaughtered at last, which is justly their due. And they've just come to this moment intellectually because what's happened right now is that it's coming to all these mistakes. And finally, you have in the Trump people, in this new realist fusion of Jeffersonians and Jacksonians, that we talk about in The Last Best Hope. Please do buy now, by the way. In Amazon, it's for sale everywhere. The book's doing great. Please buy today. You will not regret it because it's the past, the present, and the future of our party. But this new fusion of realism where we talk about limits, we talk about primary American interests, we talk about using the American military force last and only to serve the needs of the American people. We talk about trade-offs between American domestic spending and what to do abroad. We talk about as much about the southern border as the Ukrainian border. For all these reasons... These folks are now a minority within the party, and this has been proven in Iowa and New Hampshire. All the establishment candidates have gone away, and Donald Trump is winning registered Republicans with his realist views around Jacksonianism and Jeffersonianism. He's winning by 50 points, and he's about to obliterate what's left. Nikki Haley's a card-carrying neocon. He's about to obliterate the Haley campaign, and with that obliteration goes the obliteration of the neocons influence. So if you substitute the words influence for end of the republic, everything Kagan and, and Nikki Haley say makes sense. But this is the boy who cried wolf. What really matters is their internal pathetic desire to hold on to power. I can see the claw marks as we lead them away from being taken seriously. And after their record, this finally puts them into the obscurity they so richly deserve. So don't buy for a second that this is anything other than the neocons' last stand. They're getting panicky, and rightly so, because the bill for Iraq and Afghanistan is at last coming due, and a new dawn of realism is upon us. And the one thing I agree with uh, Ann Applebaum about is history will judge the complicit. Thanks very much. Hope you enjoy that. Great fun to do this one. And on we go to the birds next. But... Please do buy The Last Best Hope out in Amazon everywhere. Book is doing great. We, uh, Many of you saw, and I managed to put online incredibly on my own, uh, our first podcast, the Security, pod, the Security Dilemma podcast with our friend John Gay uh, at the John Quincy Adams Society. If not, have a listen. It was great fun. We talked for an hour in length about the book, and the book is doing great. We have more is to come next Monday. Uh, the Washington Examiner will run its review, and there will be a whole series of reviews after that. Uh, and I will keep you abreast of everything in our community. But please do tell everyone who might be interested that the neocons last stand is the best news in a very long time as realism makes a proper comeback.